You may be seated. And as you're doing that, if you wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, you can use your electronic Bible or your paper one. They'll both work just fine. As you're doing that, I want to I wanna talk first about a, a disturbing trend, a disturbing thing that's happening in our world right now. Obviously, you know, there's lots of them to choose from, but this is one that's kind of interesting and it'll tie into our sermon for today. You know, there, there, people like to go to exotic places. We like to go to places that are not our normal place. We like to, to get away, if you will. And so every year, people get away to these exotic locales, and many of them end up dying there. Or they end up with an incident of extensive injury, surprisingly extensive injuries. And these deaths are, are on the rise. And you might say, okay, what, what is this we're talking about here, Pastor John? Um, and if I say exotic locale, and I say you're enjoying the place where you're at, and it's beautiful, and it's maybe sunny, and I say something happens immediately, and there's a tragic death, some of you are going to go to shark attacks. This, le- this church service is not about shark attacks. Instead, in the last seven years, 250 people have died while taking pictures of themselves, known as selfies. Selfie, for those of you that don't know what that is, that's where you take your cell phone and you hold it to take a picture of yourself, hence the term selfie. There's even sticks that you can put your phone on to make your phone get farther away to include more people in your selfie. I heard an interesting statistic. One out of every 10 selfies results in an injury. And I look at that and I go, I haven't taken very many selfies in my life, but maybe 10, and I haven't gotten injured yet, so I'm not sure I'll do another one after today. So why is it that people are risking life and limb, tens of thousands of injuries every single year for someone who has to get that perfect selfie right in front of the oncoming train or standing with one foot on the corner of a cliff or reaching out like they're going to pet the jellyfish? Why is it that they are doing that? Why is that something, especially with the younger set, I know that some of you are pretty savvy with your telephones, you might be a selfie expert as well. Why is it that we are willing to do that? What is the purpose of that? Because the next thing we do with the selfie is we don't just keep them on our phone and go, oh, reminisce, it's nice. Instead, we post it and we hashtag it and we say, look at this, look how amazing this was. You know, you put a picture of of you swimming with dolphins and it's hashtag typical Tuesday. (laughs) See, here's the thing is The reason why selfies are incredibly popular, so popular that we have this name for them, is because it's all about mattering. It's all about putting something out there and having people go, wow, that's awesome. You did that? I can't believe it. It's about mattering. It's about someone saying, what you did matters. And in our celebrity-soaked culture, that is something that is incredibly popular. A deep longing to matter. A deep longing for someone to notice. Now you may say, I've never taken a selfie, and now after this first introduction, I'm never going to take a selfie. But don't think you're off the hook when it comes to wanting to matter. Have you ever been somewhere where people have donated money for that building or that auditorium or that stadium? Have you ever been there? Yeah, Yeah, you, you see that, and what do you see? You see... People's names all over the place. Oh, you're a bronze giver. No, you're a gold giver. No, you're a platinum giver. And there's all these names. That's the same exact mindset with the selfie generation. And I'm not here to say, hey, don't give money. If they put your name up and it wasn't your choice, so be it. But many people, they give, they they, add something to it for that. They get their name on it. I mean, think about how many buildings are named after a Rockefeller. Think about how many buildings are named after celebrities, these these incredibly rich people. See, this wall of donors is a you matter. Congratulations. 
And some of you are like, okay, you know what? I'm safe. This is a sermon. I can just tune out because I don't take selfies and I don't have money. Well, anytime you do something and your response is, yep, that was me, right? Have you ever had that where you pray for somebody and the thing you're praying for happens and instead of going, praise the Lord, you go, yeah, I prayed for that. That was me. That was me. That's the same mindset. You want to matter. You want recognition. You want someone to notice what you've done. And you have decided that's the direction I'm going to go. I'm not worried about what God thinks. I'm worried about what I get, what the strokes are. Is somebody going to recognize me? Today in our passage we're going to look at here, Jesus attacks the selfie culture. He attacks the donor culture. He attacks the I did that culture. And says, if you want real intimacy with another person or with God, it comes in the privacy and it shuns publicity and you do it for that one alone. Christ is going to call us today to do our works, not to be seen by man, but to be seen by him and him alone. So our big idea today, kingdom citizens practice righteousness for the king alone and he rewards them. Kingdom citizens practice righteousness for the king alone, and he rewards them. See, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, which is really Jesus' kingdom manifesto. He says, this is what my kingdom looks like, and it starts now, and it's going to continue on into eternity forever. And these are the people that make up my kingdom. Remember, it's not, these are the way you act to get into my kingdom. No, this is the proof that you are a part of his kingdom. That your citizenship has changed from citizenship in the world to citizenship in the kingdom. The last few weeks, Jesus has been saying, you've heard it said... But I say, and this is where he's attacking all of the, the ways the Pharisees have mistaught the Bible, mistaught what God taught in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, instead of attacking what has been taught, he's attacking how they do it. He says, this is what you do. Don't do that. This is what you should be doing. Do that. So Jesus is no longer dealing with just how they teach, but now he's dealing with how they act and how they live. And so we need to jump back into Matthew 5 for a second because Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is really the, the key to all the things we've been talking about thus far. So let's jump back there for a second and then we'll get into our passage. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches other to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See the two groups there? You got the Pharisees on what they're teaching, and now it's what they're doing. We've got to have both. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is, the, this is what set the stage for all those you've heard it said, and it's also setting the stage for the next two weeks as we get into, here's how you practice righteousness. Practicing righteousness means doing the things that the Bible asks for you to do, the Bible commands for you to do. We hear the word piety is a word that's used for that. But all it means is doing the actions, doing the activities that the Lord calls you to do. And we have to understand this is not a positive platitude. We're not to sit here and go, you know, so-and-so is really bad at giving. I'm going to send them this message. You know, so-and-so needs to learn how to pray. You know, they're not very good at it. They do it really showy. I'm going to send them these notes. Or to think, well, that was the Pharisees and that's for them. No, this is for us. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. He's using examples and analogies from the culture around him to say, don't be like that. That's what we need to get from this. Don't be like that. So here's the passage. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6. Then we're going to skip ahead to verse 16 and do 16, 17, and 18. And then next week we'll hit the Lord's Prayer right in the middle. And, and it'll, it'll make sense when you see how this is all structured. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees will in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you fa- but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It is the word of the Lord. So this entire chapter is about how to live out the Christian life. In this chapter, we see 12 different times the Father is mentioned. This is all about our relationship with the Father. Jesus is saying, here's how we enter into communion with the Father. We need not miss this. His his gaze sees everything. He's, He's able to see every single thing that we do, including our hearts when we do them. So that's the first thing we need to kind of grasp from this. Now, as we walk through this passage, Jesus lays out his thesis right at the beginning. Verse one is his thesis. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying there's a virus out there. There's a virus that won't just hurt you in this life. It's going to hurt you in the next one. And that virus is the fear of man. It's the wanting the acclaim of man as your soul life purpose. And ultimately, this virus leads to no reward from your heavenly Father. So the motivation here is don't be like the hypocrites. Do not allow yourself to be like the hypocrites. So let's walk through this verse. Kyle, would you put that verse back up there so everybody can see it as we're going through it? There's four points here that we need to see. The first one is beware. Beware. Warning. This is do not do this. Be aware that this is happening. Watch out. Look out. Heads. Whatever gets your attention. Jesus is using that type of word. Three exclamation points. Beware. Pay attention. Then he says, practicing your righteousness. Not practicing righteousness to look like someone else, but your own personal righteousness. See, Jesus could have easily, the the people that were listening to Jesus easily could have got the idea that all they had to do was believe the right thing and they were fine with God. But Jesus isn't letting them go that way. He's saying, no, no, it's not just about what you believe, but it's how you act it out. It's what you do with what you believe. See, in Jesus' mind and in the kingdom, there is no dichotomy between who I am on the inside and who I am on the outside. Who I am on the outside should be a reflection of who I am on the inside. Third thing we see is they say they do their righteous acts to be seen by men. That's kind of a weak translation. It really it means in order. The sole reason they do it is to be seen by others. It's a very emphatic statement. It's saying they're not even worried about really about God. They're only worried, what does so-and-so think of me when I do this thing? This fear of men is what they're living for. And then last thing we see is we see this word reward. The word reward here means wages or the thing that you've earned. We need to be careful that we get that there is a reward for following the Lord. We'll talk about this at the end of the sermon. But the reward that's not here is not going to hell. Okay, it's, this is, they already are a part of God's family. And what does Romans 8, 39 say? It says, nothing can separate us from him. He's speaking to the disciples and say, you're in. But what comes next is you can lose your reward. You can lose that pleasing of the Lord. So don't hear it when you say, when you hear that reward, that's not going to heaven or not going to heaven. 
It's not heaven or hell that they're losing if you don't do these things. You're already in heaven. You're already going to go there. It's the reward for the actions that you do because you're on your way there. That's what he's talking about here. And we'll get into that a little bit in a minute. So just if you have thoughts in your minds, just kind of set them aside and we'll get to that because that's going to be where we're going to finish because that's where Jesus finishes. So Jesus is saying why we do something is just as significant as what we do. He wants us to not miss out the fact that our motivations matter. Now you may go, okay, I, I've been in, we've been in church for a little while now, and we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I seem to think there's, there's something in the Sermon on the Mount that goes, uh, well, we're supposed to do our stuff out in public, right? Matthew 5.14 says, you are the light of my closet. You are the light of yourself. No, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You're to have your light out, not under a basket. It sounds like Jesus is saying, no, actually, I, let's do it under the basket after all. Let's not show anybody. But instead, he says, put it on a stand. It gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, there's a balancing act here that's always at play in the Christian life. See, that last part there, we want to go, they may see your good works and give me glory and God in heaven as well. And what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying, you can't have both. It's either one or the other. And so this balancing act, we have to do our actions in front of others. We want to show Christ off. But the glory goes to Christ. It does not go to us. Righteous conduct must be visible. But the visibility is so that God gets the glory. I like what one author writes. He says, We human beings are a strange lot. We hear high moral injunctions and get a glimpse of the beauty of perfect holiness. And then we prostitute it by dreaming about how we'll get others to like it in us. The demand for genuine perfection loses itself in the lesser goal of looking good on the outside. The goal of the pleasing the Father is traded for its shrunken cousin, the pleasing of men. It almost seems that the greater the demand of holiness, the greater the opportunity for hypocrisy. Is that not true? We, we get this idea of being holy, and there's like this, this innate desire that as soon as we start looking holy, we're like, oh, you know, someone's going to notice that I look pretty holy today, and that makes me look really good, and then they'll glorify God. That's not what this is saying. This is saying it's either one or the other. The ultimate choice here is, do I please self or do I please God? The way to get ourselves right is to see that this whole life is permeated with God, and it should be pointing to God in all that we do. See, Jesus does not prohibit us doing these actions Instead, he wants our motivations to be right. And the motivation is God's glory. So we're going to walk through these, these three paragraphs, four paragraphs, if you break it down a certain way. We're going to look at these paragraphs, and they all have the same thing in common. They have a warning, they have a guarantee, they have instruction, and they have an assurance. And all four of these are, all, are repeated over and over again. Because repetition is the way we remember what is said. So the first one we see, the warning. There are three warnings here. And these warnings are, do not be praised by men. Do not do your work to be praised by men. And I wish you guys could see it on the, on the confidence monitor in the back back here. The word warning takes up the entire screen. I feel like this is kind of weak because what Jesus is saying is, warning, big warning. It's like, I thought they were yelling at me from the screen there. I'm like, okay. But that's what it is. It's this warning. It's, it's blaring. It's those flashing lights on the freeway. It's the, it's the, the flashing lights of the fire departments, trucks. It's, it's saying this is a big deal. And so Jesus focuses on three actions, giving, prayer, and fasting. And the reason he chose those was because that was the primary way that most people showed that they belonged to God in this time. And the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes and the scribes and all the other religious groups, they hung their hats that they did this better than anybody else. So in our culture, what is that for us? What is the thing where it's, yeah, well, you know, I, I go to prayer. Well, I go to church. Well, I tithe this much. Well, I don't ever miss a Bible study. Well, I 
what is that thing? And each of us is going to have something different. And so Jesus is choosing the thing that his disciples would have been tempted to say, I did that, therefore I'm right with God. I did that, did you see it? Hashtag blessed, look at me. Who are we practicing our righteousness for? Notice as well in this when it says when, not if. This is an important thing. Jesus knew that his disciples were going to have to do this. It's not, hey, if you decide to give to the needy, if you decide to pray, or if, you know, someday if you decide to fast. No, he says when. See, and the early church got this because the early church did all three of these and they kept doing them, and church history shows us this has been what Christians have done throughout. And so there's, there's a kind of an application even right here. Which of these are you not doing? Jesus says when you do it, not if. These are not private practices, that, or these are not natural practices that we come to alone. Instead, they are Holy Spirit-inspired practices that we can and should be doing. So before we get into verse 2, look at the word hypocrites here. Play actors, people who act a certain way. Now, we need to understand that this does not mean someone who does the right thing even though they don't feel like it. Our world says that's hypocritical. Oh, you don't feel like praying for that person? Then you don't got to do it. You don't want to be hypocritical. No, see, that's the wrong word. Not doing what you feel like and doing what's right, that's called maturity. A five-year-old does whatever a five-year-old feels like doing at that moment. And unfortunately, we've got some fully grown five-year-olds in our world. But this idea here is not, well, I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. No, maturity says, I don't feel like it, and I need to do it. A hypocrite instead is saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to put this on and pretend I'm something that I'm not. And it's always in front of people. There's three ways that we can be hypocritical. The first one is that we're evil and we're trying to trick everybody into believing that we're good, that we're pure. Like, say, a pastor who gets up and rails on lust and pornography but has a porn addiction on the side that nobody knows about. He knows that he's sinful. He knows what his heart's like, but yet he's saying, look at me, I'm so pure. The other way we can be hypocritical is that we're carried away in our play acting. We've been playing so long, we've been doing church so long and faking it for so long that we actually believe we're actually pretty holy now. This is a temptation when you're in church for a very long time. You grow up in the church, you just kind of do it. You go through the motions. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you're doing it for God, it should overflow into outside of you. It shouldn't be something that you just put on each and every week. The third way is the person who deceives themselves into thinking that they're looking out for other people's best interests, but they really don't believe it. This is like the pastor who gets up and says, here's all the things you need to believe, but in his heart, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He lives a completely opposite life. The idea here is is that a hypocrite's heart does not match the actions. And a kingdom citizen's heart matches the actions because the actions are an overflow of the heart. So Jesus is going to give us these three pictures. The first one is don't give like them. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. This giving to the needy traditionally means money, but it can be all sorts of things. But like we said a couple weeks ago, money is a good barometer of where our hearts are at. And so if money is the thing we hold on to the most, then that's the thing we need to give up the most. And so this giving to the needy is those who have a need. This idea of sounding a trumpet, there's all sorts of debate, some debates about whether the the, the offering box looked like a trumpet or in certain festivals they would do a trumpet and everybody would give. It doesn't really matter what it means because the point of it is what's your motivation Is the motivation to go and make noise and say, everybody look at me, I'm giving my tithe? Or is it to not be about me and about the one you're giving the tithe to? So there's three ways we can give. One way is we seek the praise of others. Hey, everybody, I'm putting my tithe in the box. Pay attention, right? Or maybe it's, I'm going to do it anonymously, but at the same time, I'm going to go, yeah. I rock. I am so holy. God is so glad to have me. 
Or is it the third way where you go, Lord, this is all I got. I hope you're pleased with it. Please be pleased with what I gave you. That's the picture we see here. So which are you? And, and we go back and forth between all of these. Next one, don't pray like them. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Now some of you, you're good at this. You say, well, I never stand when I pray. I never stand on street corners. I don't even know what a synagogue is. That's not the point of this. The point of this is the to be seen, that they will be seen. They stand up in front and they say, oh yeah, I'll offer a prayer. And they do this flowery prayer, not to God, but to the people in the audience. This is a common temptation. In my office, when we remodeled it, uh, we took the blinds down, so I have no blinds in my office. And across from me is a couple of classrooms that during the day have teachers and, and parents and students in there. And I got to tell you, when, when I go to pray, I get down on my knees and I pray, and I go, wow, I'm going to look really holy. Those kids over there are going to go, oh, Pastor John, he prays a lot. <laughs> and I would be lying to you if I said that wasn't a temptation. And I joke about it because it's a struggle. Because I'm a pastor, and I want to be seen as someone who's following Christ and doing what's right for Christ. But what Christ is saying here is if I get down on my knees and I go, man, I'm going to impress that kindergarten teacher over there, my prayers don't leave the room. And that's a scary thing to think about because I love you guys, and I want to pray so that you'll, the Lord, I, I just want to put the tracks in front of the locomotive, right? I just want the locomotive of God's love and blessing on your lives to just run you over in his love. But instead, I'm over here trying to build my own kingdom and look a certain way. So please pray for me. <laughs> please. <laughs> or buy me some curtains. Whatever, right? <laughs> Katie has some picked out that she likes, so we'll get them in there eventually. So don't give like them, don't pray like them, and finally don't fast like them. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So fasting is to abstain from something for a time. It is something that traditionally Christians have done. Uh, usually it's food, but it can be lots of other things. But food is always a good place to start. The fasting does not get God's attention, does not change God. Instead, it changes us. Pharisees would fast twice a week, and they would make an incredible show of it. John the Baptist fasted. He didn't make a show of it. Early church members fasted in the privacy of their homes. This is a Christian practice. It is something we need to do. One of the ways that fasting has been used by contemporaries is that they will have, they have a big decision to make, and they want to make sure they hear from the Lord, and so they devote the time that they would be eating to not eat and to devote it to prayer. Prayer and fasting go together. We have fasts on the Christian calendar like Lent, there are also other religions that do long fasts as well. However, many of the people that do this, they practice it in a way that does draw attention to them by wearing certain clothes, putting certain things on, or by their incredible feast at the end of the fast to say, hey, we just got done fasting. Kingdom citizens are not to fast that way. We are to fast and no one's to know it. Wow, I didn't know you were fasting. Well, there we go. So there we go. So we got the don't pray like them, don't fast like them, don't give like them. And then we get the reward, the reward for ignoring. So this is a, this is a guarantee. Jesus says this is what you get when you pursue what the world, what, what the world's thanks, the world's uh, acclaim. So I found this quote, and I thought this was a perfect quote. The one you are trying to impress will give you your reward. I'm going to say that again because I think this is it. The one you're trying to impress will give you your reward, and that's it. If I'm trying to impress you guys, your acclaim to me is all I get. If I'm trying to impress a spiritual mentor for him to say, wow, you're holy, that's all I get. But if I'm trying to impress my God, I get his acclaim, and he may throw your guys' acclaim in as well. Who would you rather get acclaim from? Would you rather it be your God or the people around you? See, verse 16 says, we are to show who we really are to the world 
Chapter 6, verse 1 says, hey, you're trying to make people think you're better than you are. And that's a temptation. So Jesus repeats himself three times in verse 2, in verse 5, and verse 16. He says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Their reward is solely the acclaim of this world. The New Living Translation says, they get the only reward that they will ever get. They receive their pay, and there they receive it in full. God owes them nothing. They were not giving to God, but they were buying the acclaim of those around them. They wanted the praise of men, and they got it. God owes them nothing. That's scary to think about. Jesus says true piety is impressing God and God alone. You know, sometimes this can manifest itself when we are serving the Lord, and we're ministering to people, and we're doing it, and we we get our hopes up, the expectation that they'll be thankful, and then they're not, and then there's that disappointment it's like, Lord, I know I was doing it for you, but it sure would have been nice for someone to say thank you. I think that's kind of a, a back way to get, you know, even though we may have started off right, and I'm doing this for the Lord, but then after I've done it for the Lord, and I'm like, I did it for the Lord, but, you know, none of these sheep thanked me. See, that's the same problem. That's the same issue. And so even at the end of doing an action that was for the Lord, we can pollute it backwards by going, well, no one thanked me. That's not why we're doing it. That's not why we should do it. The Lord sees and He is thankful. One author writes, anyone who does a good deed to be seen and associated by others will lose his or her reward no matter how good or beneficial it is. There are no exceptions. So think about that. You could be a believer who is helping a leper's ulcerated limbs and praying and talking with them And that good deed could simply be that. There's nothing else. You got the thank of the leper, the thank of the people watching you, nothing from your Lord. You can pray for your enemies like we talked about last week, but you're doing it for the people looking at you. Guess what? You don't have a reward from your God. You could get up and be the best preacher ever. And if you're doing it for the acclaim of the people that are listening, you don't get a reward from your God. The recognition of man and the recognition of God do not go together. This is terrifying. Could someone have lived an entire life devoted to the Lord and have it not please Him even for a second? Yes. Now, praise be to God, our works are not what get us into heaven. It's Christ's works. Christ's works always get us into heaven. That's the only thing that gets us in. So praise be to God, the fact that I'm not doing things for His glory doesn't lose me my salvation. But what it does do is it does keep me from the reward that he's going to give me now and the reward he's going to give me later. That's a scary thought because, you know, as a teacher, spent 16 years caring for students. It was hard because, you know what, they weren't very thankful. Here's your test. That, that, That doesn't get, oh, thanks, Mr. Roberts, that's awesome. You don't get that. It's few and far between. But that's not why we are to do it. And there are times that I did it for that. And to think about, oh, Lord, you know, this week I was thinking, Lord, was that 16 years not pleasing to you? Did I do it for myself? Did I do it for the pats on the back? So this is a scary thought, and this is a place where we need to think, and we need to search our hearts. Why are we doing it? So then, though, Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us instructions. He says, this is how you do these secret acts. He wants us to be clear on how to do it. He says, when you do your piety, do it secretively. Do it away from the eyes of those around. Because he knows when we get up in front, it's going to be a huge temptation. So he says, do it where they can't see you. Verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. This means to be unselfconscious or unselfimpressed with your giving. Be like, well, I gave a lot this week. The motive of charity should never be the desires of seeing men seeing you, women seeing you. Instead of a donor list, you would want your name not to be known because it doesn't matter. And you know what? There are people in this room that are like that. They donate, they give their money, and they don't want anybody to know. They give their time, and they get upset when their pastor gives them a thank you card. 
because they don't do it for that. And that's the way it should be. We should, we should not worry about a claim from others because our acclaim is from our Father. Next, we see pray like this. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. The message says, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it will never turn you into a saint. I love that. So when it says go into your closet, this is not saying, okay, you know what, that closed closet, we're going to have to empty it out. It's a prayer closet now. Sorry. Right? You know, I could see someone have the door now in prayer, you know, like a light shining. I think that's the wrong motivation. This, this is referencing the only room inside the homes in Israel at this time. There was one room for privacy. Just be thankful. No matter the size of your house, you've got rooms where there's some privacy, right? The ancient Jews, they didn't have that. They had one room that you could actually close the door and get away from everybody. And it was a, it was a pantry-like thing. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, go to wherever you need to go to be away and do your prayers not to be seen, not to be heard. One author said, we should show when we're tempted to hide and hide when we're tempted to show. Show when we're tempted to hide and hide when we're tempted to show. So when you go to lunch today and you're at that restaurant and you're going, I really don't know if we should pray that loud. These people might get upset. I mean, uh, that's when you need to pray. Show it. When you're tempted by your flesh to go, oh, I'm worried about what those people are going to think. Show it. That's not from God. You know, I'd really like my people to stop praying because those people would be upset over there. No, that's not from the Lord. However, when it's, hey, we need someone to pray. Hey, yeah, I've got a good one on board. Let me, let me let you have it. That's the kind of thing we need to go, okay, yep, that's my flesh. See, it's all about the motivations. What are you tempted to do? If you're tempted to hide it, show it. If you're tempted to show it, hide it. You're not ready yet. Spurgeon says, public prayer is not evidence of piety. It is practiced by, in abundance by hypocrites. Private prayer, however, is something the hypocrite has no stomach for. If you're praying and there's no one listening, that's where you should be. If you're praying, only pray when people are listening, that's not where you should be. True prayer is addressed to God. It is vertical. The temptation, though, is that we're surrounded by all these people horizontally. Such prayer horizontally is rudeness to God, the one we're actually talking to. Public prayer is not forbidden. This is not Jesus saying, don't ever pray in public, because not only did he pray in public, but his apostles did, and all throughout the book of Acts, they do it. It's the, it's the purpose and the, the means behind it, the why we're doing it. And next week, Jesus gives us a picture of how to do it. So he doesn't just leave us alone and say, go figure it out. He actually lays it out for us. So we'll have that next week. Next thing we see is he says, fast like this. Verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head. And wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. See, our world is defined by its, by its appetites. Our world lives for its appetites. As a matter of fact, there are classes of people that their sole identity, the thing that they say, this is who I am, is determined by an appetite, a desire. They say, my, this is my identity, is based on an appetite. Fasting says, my appetites do not control me. Whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, whether it's material, I am going to exert self-control, which self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so when you are in touch with the Spirit, the Spirit gives you the self-control to then fast from the things to say, Lord, my appetite is for you. It's not for the things of this world. One author says, I'm going to stop the incessant nibbling at the table of the world and instead live for my Father's blessings. So fasting from food is very typical. It's, it's good. God actually made it so that we could go a couple hours, a couple days without food. We can't go a couple days without oxygen. We can't go a couple weeks without water. We can go without certain things. And God has gifted us the ability to do that. Because it's a self-humbling, it's a humiliating thing to say, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be lorded over by my appetites. Instead, I'm going to turn to the Lord. 
But you see how if we fast for the acclaim of others, we're actually doing the exact opposite of what the purpose of fasting is. Fasting is to say, humbly, Lord, I come before you recognizing I cannot sustain myself. I need you. Fasting for people says, I'm doing this so you'll see me. It's the exact opposite of the purpose. Too many times we use fasting as kind of a magic wand to say, well, if I fast, the Lord is going to give me this. That's not the way it works. Instead, it's to drive us to be closer to the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, our Lord's principle is forget people altogether. Now, if you stopped right there, he sounds like a heretic. But if you keep going, he says, in order to avoid looking sad, don't put a grin on your face. I'm, I'm not fasting. No, not even a little. I'm okay. That's not it. He says, forget your face, forget yourself, forget others. It's the interest and the opinions of others that makes us go so wrong. Don't worry about the impression you're making. Forget yourself entirely. Be concerned about God and pleasing Him only. Be concerned only for His glory. If our great concern is to please God and glorify His name, all of these practicing of righteousness will line right up where they're supposed to be. You don't have to tell someone who is deeply in love with the Lord and in touch with the Lord and is communing with Him daily how to give, how to pray, or how to fast. And that's the picture of what we want. And again, this, this, this sermon could be done right now, but there's one more thing that we have to touch on. And this is the promise, the assurance of reward. that says the Father who sees in secret, which means He sees everything, who sees your heart, will reward you. And again, this isn't a one-off. This isn't like, well, there's this one verse about reward, so yeah, okay. No, this is three separate times. And not only that, but it's throughout the Bible. Jesus says, look forward to your reward. Look forward. Paul says, there's a reward coming. The author of Hebrews says, the joy before you, it's coming. Look forward to the reward. Jesus does not teach, be good for good's sake. It's not biblical thinking at all. Instead, he says, look to the present benefits. You know what? Sometimes the Lord's going to bless you with stuff. Sometimes he's going to bless you with feelings. But he's always going to bless you spiritually right here and right now. And that's not even looking forward to the future and the blessing that we're going to have for eternity. Look at Hebrews 12 too. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Remember, we're called Christians, which means little Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. This is, this is, he's pursuing joy. He's pursuing the pleasures of God. Because what does the Bible promise? You, know, you all know this psalm, and we look at it and we go, yeah, God's got promised stuff for us in the future. But it's the here and now as well. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our God is not limited to rewards at the end of our lives. He gives it to us here and now. Many times we, we, we feel bad about going and going, well, I don't want to do it for the reward. I want to be totally altruistic. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, pursue the reward. The reward is there. Be encouraged when you do a good act and nobody sees it. Your Father in heaven sees it and He'll reward you then and He may even reward you now. And I love the fact that He doesn't tell us what the reward's going to be because that would be magic. I do this, I do this, poof. That's not what God says. God says, you do that and I'm going I'm to reward you in ways you don't even know yet. How awesome is it to be a part of God's family? It does sound spiritual to be a good Christian for being a good Christian's sake, but that's not what Jesus teaches. Because ultimately, it's not whether we're going to have a reward, it's which reward are we pursuing? Are we pursuing the reward from men or are we pursuing the reward from God? Look at Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He will reward those who seek Him. Matthew 5.12, we've already seen this one. Reward and be glad, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. See, the, the reward is there. It's in the future. It's in the now. The reality is, is that we all pursue reward. 
And I got to tell you, pursuing man's reward is never going to meet it. Because what is rewarded today might not be in vogue next week. It might not even be in vogue the next hour. I mean, you can just go back in the last two years and you can see people that were way on one side who happened to say something that now doesn't match with what's believed right now and they are getting canceled. They did it for the acclaim of man here and now they're getting scorn and shame. Your God's reward that He gives you does not go away. It is there. It is waiting for you in heaven and He graciously gives it to us now. So if you're in this room and He's not your Father... You're chasing after, you're trying to nail water to the wall, trying to get man's acclaim. Because the thing you may stand for, you may not have stood for it enough in two weeks, in two years. You may not even have stood for it enough in the last 30 minutes. And you're canceled, you're judged, you're shamed. But your God in heaven says, no, I see, I reward, I am pleased, I am grateful, that's my kid. We should be interested in rewards. There's nothing wrong with it. C.S. Lewis knew that we were going to have a problem with this, though. Because doesn't it seem kind of mercenary if I'm going to do all these things for God and there's this reward tagged on? He says, there's different kinds of rewards. There are rewards that have no natural connection. So, if I marry someone, or if I love someone, and I get money for it, that's mercenary. Because the money doesn't come directly from the love. If I love someone and I marry her, that's directly connected. A general who fights to get acclaim in book deals, that's not connected. The general who fights to win the war, it's connected. The proper reward is never tacked on. It's the consummation. This is where we're at with our actions. The consummation of our doing these actions is we get the joy of the Lord and we get more of Him. That's our reward. It's an everlasting reward. That's why this is not mercenary. And that's why we can pursue these rewards because the reward is not, you know, if I do this and I do this, poof, that's magic. It's instead, if I do this and I do this, I get God. And guess what? Sometimes he gives me things that are pretty doggone like magic. Other times he just gives me him, but praise be to God, I get God. The God of the universe is mine. So do it for the reward. We say, I do this for the Lord. It should be more clearly to say, I do this for the reward of the joy of the Lord. Think about a football coach who pulls his team together and let's go do this for the win. What he's saying is, let's do this for the reward of winning. The reward of it. It's not mercenary to pursue the reward of joy in the Lord. So see how this looks in your life. I'm going to lead my life group for the reward of the joy in the Lord. I'm going to wash the dishes for the reward of the joy in the Lord. I'm going to share the gospel for the reward of the joy in the Lord. I'm going to make this sales call for the reward of the joy in the Lord. I'm going to love my wife or my children for the reward of the joy in the Lord. See, if our motivation is to get more of the Lord in what we do, that's the correct motivation. I want more of Him. I want His joy. He's promised that He has pleasures forevermore. Right there. We know that verse is in the Bible and we love to quote it about heaven, but it's now as well. And to lovingly sacrifice for others and point them to that reward, to share that reward, is also an incredible motivation as well. It should never be, I'm going to be patted on the back. I'm going to have people see me. Instead, it's the reward of the joy of the Lord. See, the hypocrite looks for a reward and says, well, all these people like me, so God must like me. But Jesus says, that's it. You don't get any other reward. By contrast, the disciple looks to the Lord and knows, no matter what everybody says about me, my God thinks I did a good job. My God is pleased with me, and nothing can take that away. When the disciple gives because he loves his father, or prays because he trusts his father, or fasts, he is saying, my father who sees me will reward me in secret. So who are you trying to please with your religious practices? Who are you trying to please with your good deeds? When we honestly reflect on this, it can be disquieting. It can be stressful. 
If that's the case, Jesus has given us the, 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 the solution. The solution is practice it in private. Spend time in prayer with your Lord by yourself. Give your time, your energy, your money, whatever it is, give it away for the Lord. And maybe fasting. Maybe you've got something in your life that is a functional God and you can't live without that appetite. Maybe you've got to say, I'm done with that for now. Lord, self-control, give it to me. See, God knows God sees your sacrifice. He sees it all. So when you can't get up, when you've done that same thing over and over again, you've cared for your kids and they're not going, mother and father, thank you. When you have poured your heart out in that ministry and it's dying and no one can see it or you're pouring your heart out and again you get trampled on, your father sees that. Your father rewards that. See, we've been adopted into his family. He's been shaping and molding us to make us look like him. We're not good at it. We need his strength. We need his power to be able to look like him and be like him. So if you are someone who looks a lot more like one of the hypocrites, your story's not done. Your God's not done with you. Take this time as we worship here in a minute to pray and ask him, Lord, help me to stop worrying about what people around me think and help me to get my eyes back on you. Because he is a good God and he's not done with us yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we can pray and we can talk to you. Lord, for, forgive me for when I've, I've put the desires and the likes of people around me first. And Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with what I've done. I pray that you'd be pre- pleased with what each of us has done. I pray that as we go about that this, this lesson that you've given us through your Son would be something that would change how we interact, how we see what's most important, that it would change our motives and our focus Help us to love you more and want to please you. And Lord, we look forward to how you're going to reward that with more of you. Give us that joy today as we serve you. In your name, amen.